great joy to be up here this morning talking about joy. Hopefully you all got handouts over there on the podium. This is the second class on joy, uh, going through the fruit of the Spirit, the different attributes of that. Um, in the other room, in the fellowship hall, we do have a class going on, the Inquirer's class, for anyone who is not yet a member, who is pursuing membership, or wants to get to know more about our church. Highly recommend that you go to that class, but if you're here, it's because you want to learn more about joy as described in the Bible and God's Word. So let's get into this. I'm excited to study this with you. Um, let's go first to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to help us understand this. Heavenly Father, You are the giver of every good gift. From Your hand come all of our blessings, Lord, and in Your presence is fullness of joy. God, we are thankful for the work of salvation which You have accomplished through Your Son. We are thankful that we have an intercessor forever at the right hand. And Lord, we are thankful that um, you have called us to your name for your purposes and that we get to be sharing in your joy, the joy that you had before the world was even created, God, the joy that you shared with your person in eternity past. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you would give us understanding. Help me to speak clearly. Um, help your word, Lord, to be understood. Let us not be distracted, God, and we pray that you would help us to take these things to heart, work in our hearts, God, by your Spirit, that we might be people of joy, be characterized by joy, and have a better understanding of the fruit of the Spirit, God. Lord, we're thankful that you are the one who cultivates this in us. We're thankful that it is something that you accomplish, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to work out our salvation in this way. We pray this in your name and ask for your help. Amen. So, last week... Steve spoke on the fruit of the Spirit, and something that I learned that many of you might have learned is that there are not actually multiple fruits of the Spirit. It is actually one fruit, and it's describing different attributes of that fruit. Um, some of you might be familiar with the attributes of God, right? So God does not have different parts. Um, rather, he, there is one God. He is of one substance, and um, there are many different attributes which are sort of a way for us to better understand God's character. Similarly, I think the fruit of the Spirit is one fruit with many different attributes or elements. And we're going to go ahead and read through the passage again, and then we'll kind of begin our discussion on this. But I do want to begin with recapping, you know, what Steve spoke on last week. I think that's going to really help frame how we understand joy, especially since joy in our culture, you know, has a lot of different connotations. It's things like self-control, I think that's pretty linear, but joy, I think, gets really confused, even for believers trying to discern you know, what makes our joy different than the world's joy. So I think that's going to be helpful. But let's begin with Galatians five sixteen through 25. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep the body, oh, I'm sorry, flip to Ephesians there. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. So, the fruit of the Spirit, one fruit, many different attributes, that's a way of helping us understand sort of the work that the Spirit is doing in cultivating this in our lives, right? And we say that the Spirit is cultivating that in our lives. I think the analogy of fruit is really helpful, right? Many other places in the Scriptures talk about how sin is something um, that sort of grows about like a weed, right? And many of us have used that analogy when speaking with others of sin being this sort of weed that we have to do the work of going and pulling out, and the Lord helps us with that, right? 
And we see also that the Lord is sort of like a gardener, right, who comes and scatters seed, and the seed, you know, he has to be the one to bring about the seed, right? And in a very real way, that makes sense to us, because the Lord is the one who brings up all of the crops, right? Like the, unless the Lord raises the house, the builders labor in vain, right? In the same way we know that the Lord, unless he's the one who brings the rain, who brings the sunshine, then there will be no crops, right? And he has to bring, sort of an analogy, the rain and the sunshine in our own lives, that by the Holy Spirit, we might develop, you know, these things that are described in the fruit of the Spirit. So, there's no sense in which you can cultivate, you know, joy without love, right? You can't have self-control, but not have gentleness. And I don't think that, I think that's only helpful to an extent when we talk about, you know, the gifts being sort of dependent on one another. There, you can't have one attribute without the others, because we're talking, again, about one fruit. And that helps understand that, right? I think if you had read that without sort of the understanding that the way the language is describing the fruit of the Spirit as being one thing, I think you still would have walked away with an understanding of, like, these things seem to be all unified and united in the heart of a believer. Um, You can't be someone who's characterized by love if you're not someone who's characterized by gentleness, right? So that's pretty naturally apparent to us. Um, The fruit of the Spirit is cultivated by the Holy Spirit. That's really important. It's something that while we can, I think Steve said that um, we're commanded, right, towards the, you know, fruit of the Spirit. We're commanded to express, and you know, those things in ourselves. But we can't, you know, without God's help, there will be no sense in which we can bring that about. Even the world can look at the fruit of the Spirit and recognize these are desirable things. These are things that I'd like to be characterized as. But without God's help, there's no way we can actually get there. The Holy Spirit sort of through regeneration, right, upon that new creation, he's the one who has to develop those things in us. John 1, in John 16, Christ promises to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples, and we're going to observe soon that uh, the Holy Spirit himself is the one who aids in developing these attributes. So the seed is there, right? Upon salvation, the seed is there. We've received the promise, right, through the covenant that we will one day, you know, resemble Christ, right? That the old man has passed away, he's been crucified, buried with Christ, and that, you know, the new has come. It's an already not yet, right? So in a one sense, it's promised to us, right? And it's really there, but it's not until eternity that we're going to see it actually, you know, fully realized. And that's important to keep in mind. If the Spirit is the gardener helping us to weed out the works of the flesh, um, that's apparent. I, I take that from walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the Spirit is against the flesh. Right, so there's this is sort of, I have mulch beds at my house, and it's I, it's funny. I don't really want anything to grow there. I want my mulch to stay there, but I do have like one or two little plants that the builder put there that are not particularly pretty, but they're much prettier than crabgrass. And uh, it's unbelievable. I, you, I never would have known in a million years that the most challenging part of having a home is trying to keep weeds out of. The, I mean, my entire driveway is gravel. And I'm about to have a, a, a fourth yard, you know, at my house where there's going to be, I'm going to be driving on. It's amazing. It will grow underneath the car, you know. There's nothing that I can do. I have to go out and get, I think next we're going to try a flamethrower to try and get rid of it. But the point is that this is what will naturally grow in your heart apart from Christ, right? And it is contrary to the Spirit, right? So if my will is to have a home that is in order, well-kept, that doesn't have the nuisance of weeds, right? Well, the weeds are contrary to my design, and likewise, the works of the flesh are contrary to the works of the Spirit. Um, The fruit of the Spirit is a product of our regeneration, the act of new creation which God has done in us. And without saving faith and repentance, we could not even begin to see the need to put to death the works of the flesh, right? Before we bought our house that was there, um, I'm sure there were weeds everywhere. Nobody ever thought there was a need to you know, pull out the weeds and, you know, burn them with a flamethrower. But now there's a home there, and we recognize this is a nuisance. These have to go. And it's, it's not that there's no way to put to death the, you know, works of the flesh apart from Christ, even though that's true, but it's you can't even begin to acknowledge them as a problem, right? Um, the world can read this and, you know, the list of the works of the flesh, and certain things they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's probably bad. Sorcery, that sounds pretty negative to most people, but in reality, they, they can only, you know, part and parcel piece together why those things might be wrong. It's, it's a personal preference of, oh yeah, I don't really want this, but something on that list most likely is going to appeal to most people apart from Christ. 
The fruit of the Spirit is cultivated for the glory of God, right? We're going to talk soon about how um, with, the, with the fruit of the Spirit, right, why does the Spirit cultivate that in us, right? Why does he want to tend to the garden of our soul, right? Why does he want to see this fruit brought about? Well, it's so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, but it's also that he might be glorified and honored and that his character might be revealed to the nations, right? But what's the point of you know, the works of the flesh? What's their final end? We know God's not glorified through the works of the flesh, right? So then what is their ultimate end? It can't be anything other than they're an end in and of themselves. Their end has to be death, right? We know that, you know, the sin, when it is fully, fully grown, it gives birth to death. So these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit are good, but they're not for our own glory, right? We might benefit from being a person of self-control, right? It might be really convenient if I'm not the kind of guy who's going to angrily steer my car and cut some guy off who's then going to try and rear-end me or brake test me or something. But that doesn't mean that um, that's the purpose, right? It's not for my convenience or for our convenience that the Spirit works these things in our lives. It's for His own glory, and like we said, that God's character might be shown to others through us, right? And that they might marvel that we have been, you know, so transformed by the work of Christ. So the works of the flesh are many. Unlike the fruit of the Spirit, which is one fruit with many different attributes, the works of the flesh are, are many. And I thought for a second, like, well, can we say that where the, works, where the fruit of the Spirit, the different attributes are all sort of, um, they work together, right, towards one common end. They're all unified. Can we say then that the works of the flesh are um, working against each other, that there, there's a dissonance inherent to the works of the flesh? And I kind of thought about that, and I, I think there's a sense in which we can say that all of the different sinful desires of, of the old man, right, prior to regeneration, um, I think that in a sense, the works of the flesh, they all seek their own instant gratification. And many times they will work together. So I don't think we can say that they're all sort of mutually exclusive. But I, I think that in another sense, they're not like the fruit of the Spirit, where they're all, you know, working towards this one common goal. They're all working towards their own goal, and they're going to sort of, you know, we might exhibit, you know, two different patterns of sin in our lives if, you know, ultimately they're going to result in more, you know, base pleasure for us, which I think that's helpful to understand. The works of the flesh are man's own works, right? So it's a sort of a contrast with understanding that the fruit of the Spirit is something which the Lord has to cultivate in our own lives. Well, we don't really need any help, right? My house is naturally going to grow weeds. I don't have to do anything about the weeds. They're going to pop up whether I like it or not. And oftentimes, even for believers, we recognize that, you know, those things are things we still have to fight against. We still have to every day go out and be like, okay, I've done a survey of, you know, my driveway over here. I know my driveway is for driving and it needs to have gravel, right, so that there's proper drainage and so I don't have a big mud pit. Well, that means that I probably need to not have weeds there. And that's, we have to do that in our own lives, right? But the works of the flesh, they're, they're, they're a naturally occurring phenomenon because of our fallen nature, right? When our first parents ate, you know, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it, from that point on the curse came, and just as the ground bore weeds and thistles, that's indicative of our own souls, right? Or of our own hearts naturally bringing about all kinds of sin. And later we see that people were inventing new forms of evil. Um, you know, the works of the flesh are at war with the Spirit. We've talked about that. And it's interesting, in John 16, Christ says that the Spirit will be sent to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Those who have their minds set on the flesh can't please God. It's impossible for them. And we know that the work of the Holy Spirit is, you know, to bring about the sanctification of believers, amongst many other things, right, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. He helps us. He's our helper, right? But, unfortunately, um, unfortunately for our sin, the Holy Spirit is also going to condemn sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who first gives us that understanding of what I just, just did was absolutely wrong. And I, I'm not 100% sure why. And unfortunately for the world, um, over time, that becomes numb. You know, we start to hide that. And especially in our culture, we see many ways that I won't get into of how the world is trying desperately to remove the shame and the conviction of the Holy Spirit over what they're doing. Um, every fallen man can read the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit and understand them as good. They know that they're good. 
right? Every, anybody can read this. Nobody you meet on the street is going to be like, you know, I really don't want to be faithful. I've really decided that I want to make it a priority in my life. I don't want to be a faithful person. Nobody thinks like that, right? Everybody wants these things. And I think that something that Jeff brought up last week was, is there a sense in which, you know, there must be a sense in which the world, you know, can love. That's not exactly what he said, but that was sort of the concept that he was getting at with his question. And I think Steve did a great job of, you know, trying to point at that without getting all into it, because, you know, as I looked at it, it is, it is challenging. What sense in, what, in what sense can the world love, right? Is, a, is it a legitimate love? Are we willing to say that only Christians can love, only Christians can have joy, only Christians can be, you know, gentle? Well, that's not true, right? We can observe that there's a sort of natural joy that people can have when they have a cup of coffee in the morning. There's a sort of natural gentleness that a mother has with her newborn child. There's a sort of natural joy that exists with you know, a bride and, you know, his, you know, a bride and her bridegroom on the wedding day. So I think that that's important, but regardless, um, those things, even though they can acknowledge them as good, um, they can't actually achieve those things. They don't have the helper. They don't have the one who can help them, you know, work those things out in their lives. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So even though the world recognizes, I do want to do these things, right? Well, the works of the flesh aren't going to let them. You know, it's opposed to it. It's going to keep you from doing what you want to do. For us, we recognize, hey, you know, I really want to do these things and I keep messing up. You know, Lord, give me the grace to, you know, overcome this in my life. They don't have that hope. They don't have someone that can intercede for them, Right? So the works are wrought by men and will produce death, right? We already know that the outcome of sin is death. While the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated that God would be praised and honored, the works of the flesh are rebellious and cannot please God. So when sin is fully grown, produces death, those without faith may recognize how desirable the fruit of the Spirit may be, but they cannot express them and their end is death unless they repent and turn away from their sin. So, talking about joy specifically within this, we should be really careful to understand the, the list is not, when it gives the fruit of the Spirit, I think naturally the way that I think and perhaps some of the ways that y'all think is, you know, this is a list of importance and love is the most important, joy is the second most important. Well, if we understand this is one fruit with many attributes, right, one can't be more important than the other, right? They're not working against each other. It's not a list of, you know, I, I don't believe that it's a list of, you know, love is the most important, joy is the second most important, this is the third. Regardless, um, I think that they're all vital. They're all vital to the life of the believer. They're all very important, and we shouldn't, when we think, oh man, love is especially important, I really want to embody that one. Well, how about we take the rest of the list and we say, hey, I'm going to make all of these just as important to myself. I'm going to recognize that all of these are things that the Lord wants me to exhibit in my life. So you'll see in your notes under the section joy 2a, the distinction between natural and spiritual joy. I don't think that this is a distinction which you're going to find readily apparent in the text. I think that this is a distinction that's helpful and that um, sort of has to be true if we're going to understand joy um, as being different for a believer than it would be for the rest of the world, right? So I think that in that sense it is in the text, but it's not gonna, there's no verse I can cite that says, you know, there is a natural joy for the world, but for believers there is a spiritual joy. Regardless, we have to make the distinction because we know that many believers, you've heard people say this, you've heard people say, oh, like, happiness and joy are different. I was talking with Ella about this, and, you know, sort of, everybody, I, I bet everyone in this room knows, you know, there must be some different joy that we can have because our hope is out of this world, right? We have an eternal joy than what the world has when they experience happiness, right? We don't know exactly what that is, but there must be some distinction. So, I'm going to be talking about that distinction as a natural joy versus a spiritual joy. The same way that I think last week, you know, we kind of talked about a sort of natural, naturally occurring love, which I think is a grace that the Lord, you know, allows fallen man who has not yet been condemned, who still lives in the world. You know, I think he allows them to have, you know, sufficient grace to be able to experience love and things like this, right, and joy. I think this is only nominally helpful. There still seems to be a real sense in which a sort of basic joy can be experienced by even those who don't know Christ. You might even say it's, you know, worldly joy versus the joy of the Lord. That, that's sort of another way you could think about this distinction. 
But, you know, I don't want to say happiness is, you know, naturally distinct from joy and that happiness is just sort of this carnal response to something positive that happened, whereas joy is the true happiness of the believer because believers can be happy. And all over the scripture we see, you know, be glad or it made their hearts glad or, you know, the people of God were, you know, they were, it doesn't use the word happy, I think. I'm not sure why the translators oftentimes don't want to use that. But joy and happiness in our English language might carry different connotations, but biblically it's talking about the same thing. You're, you're happy, you're rejoicing, you're glad, right? So I want to be really careful with that. Believers are not without happiness, right? We want to be careful not to say believers are joyful, but they're generally not happy. That might be true sometimes, right? That might be what people think about us, you know, when we're singing hymns and psalms of repentance, but we're not an unhappy people. We should be the most happy people in the world, right? Because we have a joy that is, you know, inexpressible with words. We know that even those without Christ can love, even though it's not fueled by the love of God. Well, likewise, they can have joy and happiness, even though it's not a joy and happiness rooted in eternity. So a few helpful distinctions, I think, between uh, natural joy and spiritual joy. We'll run through them. Um, I had this idea. I was trying to think, okay, well, how does the world define joy differently than, you know, we do? And I thought this would be really cool, you know, for me to meet a few random people on the streets and ask them, how, you know, what, is, what do you think joy is? You know, just to kind of get a survey of them that I could bring to you guys. I got a haircut about a week and a half ago and I walked into the, uh, into the Great Clips because I'm not the kind of person who gets a $50 haircut. And I walked into the Great Clips and I'm super happy and I'm excited and I'm like, I'm going to ask whoever cuts my hair, you know, what they think joy is. We'll have this kind of interesting little conversation and I'll leave with a mediocre haircut. And I sat down in the chair, and she put the little blanket on me and put the little, you know, thing around my neck, and she kind of starts getting her tools out, and she's like, what do you, you know, what do you want? And I was like, well, I don't know, this sort of thing. I don't really have any idea what I'm doing with my hair. And she said, okay. And I was kind of quiet for a second. I said, so, you know, how are you? And she's like, I'm fine. And I was like, okay. Um, you know, how long have you been working here? She's like, a few months. <laughs> Just like awkwardly quiet, you know, she's doing all this stuff, pulling on my hair, and the more questions I ask her, you know, um, do you enjoy working here? It's fine, you know. It's like she's pulling on my hair harder and harder. <laughs> it's sort of a punishment, and I was like, okay, this isn't going to work. And, but I wanted to ask her, what, do you, what, you know, what is joy to you? But it was so apparent that she had absolutely no joy, at least that day, that it wasn't even worth asking. I, I think she would have just pretty much gone ahead and cut all my hair off. But um, Here are some things that I think probably will resound with many of you you know, when we think about how does the world seem to understand joy? Uh, what, are the, what are the senses in which joy is distinct from, right, spiritual joy as found in the Bible? So the first one I think is um, natural joy is derived from circumstance versus beginning with the Holy Spirit. The first inclination of most believers is to recognize that biblical joy cannot be derived from temporal circumstance because temporal circumstance is subject to change, right? I can be really happy about my cup of coffee, but once it's gone, I can't be happy about my cup of coffee again. Maybe I'm happy because now I have a little bit of a caffeine buzz, but I'm not really happy because I have a cup of warm cup of coffee anymore. I have to go get another cup. And then I'm unhappy because I've had too much and I'm becoming nervous and shaky because I get the caffeine jitters, you know? But we know that joy does aid us in our suffering, right? So even though Christian joy is not based upon circumstance, Many of the resources I reached out to were kind of talking about joy like joy is predominantly a result of suffering and circumstance. And I think that that's, you know, I don't think that's true. I think that there's a, definitely a sense in which Scripture tell, shows us that suffering refines our joy, right? And I think maybe it's more helpful to say that suffering and, you know, trials are a great sort of uh, spotlight on our joy, right? Because when things are great, the non-believer doesn't look at the Christian and say, oh, I understand why this person's, you know, happy. It's because of this marvelous God that they serve. They say, oh, yeah, everything's going his way. Of course he's happy, right? But it's when your house burns down. It's when you get a flat tire. It's when, you know, your kid gets strep throat and everything's rough, right? Obviously more circumstances than that. It's when we're under persecution. It's when, you know, we see a world that hates Christ, right? It's when the world hates us, right? And it's when we suffer as Christ suffered and share in that suffering, right? That's when they look at our joy and it confuses them and it confounds them. So I think that definitely circumstance plays into joy, but I think that for the believer, that's not the foundation of our joy. Our eternal circumstances are the foundation of our joy, but not these temporal, fleeting, changing circumstances. 
Um, the world's joy is temporary and subject to change versus increasing and abiding with the Christian. So the world's joy, they can have joy, like we said, with a cup of coffee, right? But with the believer, that joy goes with them. That is a joy that they will have for the rest of their life. And it might be realized in different capacities as they go through different things, as they struggle, and as, you know, the Spirit slowly brings about that completion of the work that's begun. But, you know, for the believer, they should have joy abounding for the rest of their life. It's an abiding joy versus a temporary joy. Um, Joy in the worldly sense, is without a purpose in itself, right? The purpose of my joy, if I have a cup of coffee or if I see a beautiful sunrise, right? Like, that's, that's the end of it. That's the extent of the joy. Um, someone who doesn't know the Lord on their wedding day, they're going to have great joy, you know, the bride and the bridegroom. They'll be overjoyed. But the joy is, you know, it doesn't have a purpose beyond itself. It's not for the glory of God, right? Even though I think the natural order of marriage, you know, I think that there is a sense in which the Lord is glorified, even in a non-believer's marriage, of course, that I don't think that their joy and how they understand it, they're not thinking, praise the Lord. This is a foretaste of the, of the glory that is to come. This is, a, this is a shadow of the marriage between Christ and his people, the church. They can't think like that. They, they're not understanding that. So it can't have a purpose beyond just what's immediately in front of it. So what is joy according to the world? Well, it's a, some people think it's a sort of fickle happiness, resulting from circumstances that may change. A lot of people understand that. And this is, it's funny because, let me ask you guys a question. You may break from talking. Do you think that the world today prioritizes joy? The average person who doesn't know the Lord is the world generally prioritizing joy. No, why do you say that? Everybody's depressed. Everybody's depressed about everything, yeah. No for a non-Christian. What do they seem to prioritize instead? What do you think, Jeff? Uh, my myself. Myself. Right. Absolutely, yeah. Marshall. Absolutely. Hmm. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think we're all talking about a similar thread runs between what everyone has said, and that's that joy has gone from a priority as, I want to be a joyful person no matter what happens, right? The world could have that. I've met people who don't know Christ who have that, pers- you know, well, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. All things considered, I, I'll try to be happy no matter what because maybe I want to, you know, bless my family. I, you know, I want my kids to know that they have a happy mother. I don't want them to, you know, suffer. But a lot, in a lot of ways, I think what we're all pointing out, and I don't know if this is cyclical over time. I don't know if, you know, every 200 years or so, the world sort of turns back to this versus the alternative. But um, people now say, I'll be happy when I have everything that I want. I'll be happy when all my needs are met. And until then, I'm going to be decidedly unhappy. That's right. It'll never happen. Uh, well, who is it? Uh, I think it was Rockefeller. Somebody asked, you know, you're the richest man in the world. How much more money do you really need? And he said, just a little bit more, right? Yeah, just a little more. There's an old, um, I think it's a Scottish sort of folktale. There's this king who's deeply unhappy. He's, you know, the most unhappy king in the kingdom. His daughters and his, you know, his queen are desperately trying to make him happy. And they go to some wise man in the kingdom and they say, you know, how can we make the king happy? And the king says, or the wise man says, well, the king has to wear the shirt of the, uh, of the happiest man in the kingdom, you know, for one day. So the, the queen commissions all these knights or something to go and find the happiest man in the kingdom. And everyone they meet is unhappy. Everyone they meet is like, well, the taxes are too high. Or, well, you know, the crops have been terrible this year. I don't like the king or, you know, whatever. And, and they finally come back and they give this report to the, to the queen and they're like, I'm sorry, there's nobody in the kingdom who's truly happy. All of them had, you know, some kind of complaint. So the, the king on his own decides that he's going to go out and find, you know, the happiest man in the kingdom. Wanders around, he's super hungry, finds this fisherman sitting by some creek or something and the gist of the story is that the fisherman is the happiest man in the kingdom, right? He's super poor, lives in this little hut that he built, you know, he just fishes all day and he's whistling songs when the king approaches and uh, the, the king talks to him, and they, they start laughing together, and he says, so were you really happy? And the guy goes, oh, man. He's like, I have no doubt that I'm the happiest man in the kingdom. And the king says, well, the reason I ask is because I've got to wear your shirt for one day, and then I'll be happy too. And the guy goes, man, I'd totally give you my shirt if I had one. <laughs> so I think that that's an illustration of how even, I mean, that's a secular tale, right? That's just a story. But it illustrates that even people who don't know Christ can understand that there's something to be desired about a joy that is not based on circumstances, right? That that's something that, you know, at least at some point has been valued, right? And ultimately, I think that that's that inkling of understanding of, man, a joy that's not based on circumstances, that must be true happiness. Well, they must get that from, you know, believers. That's something that has been worked out into the culture to varying degrees because of, you know, the teaching of Christ and and the Word of God. So what is joy according to the Bible. Well, we're going to read a few verses about this, but sort of a working definition. It's, it's really easy to say something like, oh, joy is when, you, when you're really glad. Joy is when you're really glad because of what Christ has done. Well, some of you might know, you can't use the definition in, you know, you can't use the word in the definition. And you can't say, oh, well, joy is when you're really glad because you're saying, oh, joy is when you have a lot of joy because of something. It's like, well, sort of, but that can't, what is it really? And so I've written here a little, you know, Moderately helpful definition of joy. Joy is the Christian's response to the person and works of God as produced by the Holy Spirit. It's a Christian response. Um, it's, it should be, you know, when we really understand, maybe when we first understand or as we, you know, come and gather on the Lord's Day to worship, a visceral response to our understanding of, wow, look what God has done, right? Um, Natural joy is actually a kindness which God shows to the world, but true Christian joy is a shadow, or sorry, even though the world's joy is, you know, it has a substance to it, it's, it's legitimate, it's not, you know, totally false, even though the world might res- derive joy from something like sin, right? The world can be made glad because of sin, but that's a twisting of a mechanism that God designed us to have that we might see his character, right? So that doesn't mean that it's you know, true joy. It's certainly not. It's actually blasphemous at that point. But true Christian joy is the response of believers when we experience God's presence, when we see what God has done, 
when we experience God's deliverance, right? And when we see even things like, you know, um, a repentance center. Many of you have probably prayed for a very long time for certain people to come to know Christ. People who have been astray for a long time. People who are bitter towards God and the gospel. If you have either seen a person who you've labored over for years come to Christ, or if you imagine, you know, that they give you a call and they say, hey, I want to talk to you about this. You know, there's so much joy in that, right? So there are many ways that, many circumstances which we can respond to with joy, but ultimately it's a response to the joy of the accomplished work of Christ in our salvation, which is unchanging, right? Not one that the Father has given to the Son is going to be taken away. We can't be, our salvation can't be undone, right? And that's why our joy is abiding. It's never-ending. It comes from the Holy Spirit, It comes from, you know, because of the work of Christ, right, and the will of God the Father. It abides with us because that work is never changing, and its purpose is the glory of God. Versus the world's joy, which comes from, you know, our our own fallen nature, right? Um, Or the works of the Spirit come from our own fallen nature, but it comes from circumstance. It comes from temporal circumstance, It comes from circumstances which can change, circumstances which are unreliable. Um, Its purpose, it it, it goes away as soon as the circumstances change, and its purpose is just the thing in itself, right? The wedding day, the sunset. As soon as the sun sets, the joy's gone. You have to wait till sunrise. If there's going to be sunrise, it could be raining. Some people like the rain. Anyway, the Holy Spirit is the cultivator of joy in the heart of the Christian. We've already talked about this a lot, but it is impossible to rightly know who God is or understand him as the author of creation, giver of every good gift, or as redeemer without being regenerated. So our regeneration is necessary to understand God's character and how he works in our lives. God himself must cause us to be joyful, just as God himself must cause us to recognize our sin and repent. I I don't think that Christian joy, actually I want to say definitively, Christian joy is not possible apart from regeneration. Christian joy is not possible until one has repented and one understands the Lord as the source and giver of all true joy. It is not an action which we are capable of on our own, and yet it is an action which we are able to be complicit in and even labor labor together with the Spirit for, just as we are called to work out our salvation, though we know it is accomplished by God alone. Just like Steve said last week, as with the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, we are both commanded and empowered commanded and empowered to be joyful. And the glory of God is the chief end of Christian joy. Where the natural joy or the world's joy is merely an end in itself, God cultivates and increases Christian joy in the hearts of his people for his own glory and praise. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So our joy stays the same yesterday and today and forever because Christ is the foundation, I think, and the source of our joy. Psalm 46 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes the the wars cease and the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The psalmist knows that God has brought joy to his people and asks the people to join him in praising. So our joy, we look at the circumstances, we look at the work that God has accomplished, we rejoice, and that rejoicing should fuel our praise. So, biblical realities of Christian joy. This is the part where I'm going to ask you all to read different verses. We'll try to get through this a little bit quickly here be respectful of time, but uh, let's go ahead and just do one verse from each section. You can just raise your hand, and then you'll be the assigned person to read. Jeff, you're required to read one, at least. Um, So under the heading A, God is the source of Christian joy, let's have someone read John 17, 9 through 13. Who wants to read that? Steve? And then under the heading, Rejoicing in the Character of God and All of His Works, let's read, let's read Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. Who wants to read that one? 
And then under the glory of God is the chief end of our joy. Let's read. Hmm. Let's read Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Who wants to read that one? Jeff. So, that first verse, Steve, would you read that? So John 17, this is the high priestly prayer. This is, you know, Christ on the night of his betrayal. He's praying and he's making intercession for his people because he knows what's about to happen, right? Um, in the prayer, he makes intercession, but who does he, whose joy does he pray might be fulfilled in his people? This is the last verse. His joy. He, yes. Right. It's almost as if our Lord is saying, is it joy or is it not? It's alien to you, and it's going to be my joy that enters into you. Amen. I think it has to be. Yeah, the, the joy that believers have, Christian joy, I think, and I believe that the scriptures tell us, is that very same joy which Christ had, right, the second person of the Trinity had with the first and third persons of the Trinity in eternity past, right? And that's the joy that we are brought into sharing. I think that's really important for us to see, and I think that's exactly what Christ means when he says that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So, the second part, uh, Zephaniah, Should you go ahead and read that, Noah. Sure. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, on that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Thank you. So who's rejoicing in this passage? God and us. We're both rejoicing together. So God and man, the Lord rejoices over his people. His people rejoice over the presence of God and his victory, praising him and exalting him as a congregation. Um, so if that first verse that we read in John, John 17, shows us that the very joy that we have is joy that comes from the Lord. It is God's joy which he's giving to his people. Well, we're sharing with that joy and like with Christ, right? We're sharing that joy with God. And it's, the joy is, you know, it's a joy that is over what God has accomplished. We rejoice because of what God has accomplished. We rejoice because of the presence of God. We rejoice that we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God. And we rejoice with God over what he's accomplished. The third passage, Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Jeff. Granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright 
Thank you. Let us rejoice and exult and what? Give him the glory. So the purpose of our, I think that's actually a perfect example right there, even though that's not the purpose of, you know, Revelation 19, 6 through 8. I think that's a great example showing us the sort of the progression of joy, if we could call it that, where it begins with a joy because of what God has done, a joy because of God's his presence, right? And then it moves to an exalting and a praising of the Lord for those things, right? And doing that to the end of ascribing him, right, the glory which is already his. There is no glory in heaven and earth which does not belong to the Lord God. And his glory is what our joy ultimately finds its end purpose as. So for someone who doesn't know the Lord, the end understanding of the joy for them is just the very thing, right? Joy because of a great meal. Joy because of a cool sunset. Joy because of even their wedding, right? But the hardship that comes robs them of that joy oftentimes. Eventually the circumstances will change and the joy will go away. Well, for us, every meal, every glass of water, every drop of rain, every sunset and sunrise, every moment of fellowship or seeing a friend who we haven't seen in a long time, all of the weddings that we go to, they're all bringing us joy, and we can understand that joy in a way that the world can't because we understand this is joyful because it is a foretaste and a foreshadowing of the new creation of heaven and of us being in the presence of God and our joy being perfected. I think that's really helpful and important for us to recognize. So joy comes... From the Lord, it is his joy that we share in. It's an abiding joy that doesn't get removed from us, stays with us. The Holy Spirit works that out in our lives until it is eventually perfected in glory. And it is for his glory that he gives us joy. So practically thinking about joy, I'm going to try and wrap this up here. Just a few key things. Somebody, something that I did not write here that I wish that I had, what gets in the way of our joy? And I'm going to ask it here. Yes. discontentment absolutely if we're not content with whatever circumstance we're going through that would take our joy away well let's think about how we can counter that according to God's word I think that the way we can counter that is that she said if we are not content with our circumstances it would take away our joy right well what are our circumstances as believers our circumstances can't be taken away we can't be discontent with them right? We've been bought by Christ. The gospel is a, go- is a message of joy. And so I think that for believers, when we recognize our circumstances, someone said, um, one theologian said that uh, joy is a uh, sort of rebellious nevertheless, right? Christians have joy not in spite of their circumstances, but precisely because of the circumstances that they have through the work of Christ. That is the foundation of our joy. I think that the biggest thing that gets in the way of our joy is a view and a mindset entirely on this world. That's what gets in the way of our joy. A few other things. Christian joy should fuel our praise and our worship. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, A friend said to me, the church should be the most happy place in the world. You know, sorry Disney World, you've got it wrong. The happiest place on earth should be right here when we get together as God's people and worship and praise him for what he's done. We should be always rejoicing, always praising. Every morning, the Lord's mercies are new, and that should be something that every minute is working out joy in our hearts. Now, some people really struggle with joy. That's a challenge. Somebody mentioned earlier that the world is increasingly sad, and to you, I would want to say this. I would want to say that one day, if you were in Christ, right, if you were trusting in his promises, right, if you have been baptized into Christ, if you have faith, right? Then on that last day, your joy will be perfected. And I think that can help us to have joy today, knowing that one day we will have perfect joy, and it will be that very same joy that the Lord has had with himself in eternity past. So one day you will have joy. Hopefully that encourages you. A few other things here, but I'll wrap up for the sake of time. I want to close by reading from the Valley of Vision. There's a prayer in here on joy. I'm going to read it, and then I'll close this out in prayer. Does anybody have any questions before I do this? We don't really have a ton of time for questions, but maybe one question if somebody has a really good one. Hmm. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Our joy is an eschatological joy. The reason why I can have joy when I see the sunrise is because I can look at that sunrise and I can appreciate it for what it is, but I can also recognize that one day the sun is going to rise on the new heavens and the new earth and it will never set, right? So I think that that's really key, what Marshall said. I'm kind of getting to the end here because of time, but I think that's absolutely key. Thank you, Marshall. Joy. O Christ, all thy ways of mercy tend to and end in my delight. Thou didst weep, sorrow, suffer, that I might rejoice. For my joy thou hast sent the Comforter, multiplied thy promises, shown me my future happiness, given me a living fountain. Thou art preparing joy for me and me for joy. I pray for joy, wait for joy, long for joy. Give me more than I could hold, desire, or think of. Measure out to me my times and degrees of joy at my work, my business, and duties. If I weep at night, give me joy in the morning. Let me rest in the thought of thy love, pardon for sin, my title to heaven, my future unspotted state. I am an unworthy recipient of thy grace. I often disesteem thy blood and slight thy love, but can in repentance draw water from the wells of thy joyous forgiveness. Let my heart leap towards the eternal Sabbath, where the work of redemption, sanctification, preservation, glorification is finished and perfected forever, where thou wilt rejoice over me with joy. There is no joy like the joy of heaven, for in that state are no sad divisions, unchristian quarrels, contentions, evil designs, weariness, hunger, cold, sadness, sin, suffering, persecutions, toils of duty. O healthful place where none are sick, O happy land where all are kings, O holy assembly where all are priests, how free a state where none are servants except to thee. Bring me speedily to the land of joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us joy. Help us to walk by the Spirit, Lord. Help us to be persons of joy that when the world meets us, they are shocked by how much joy we have in spite of all of the craziness and the confusion and the seeming disorder of this world. God, give us a joy, that joy which you promised that you would give, Lord, the joy that Christ prayed that we might have. Help us to understand that we have really received it, God. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for what you have accomplished and what you will accomplish. Thank you that in us, Lord, you have promised that our joy, your joy, will be complete. 